you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll continue our look at this letter from Paul to the churches in Asia, and particularly the Ephesian church. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 10 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the Word of God. You know, the book of Ephesians, as we've been talking about, has a grammar. And we believe that this grammar that we see in the book of Ephesians is in fact the grammar of the Gospel. In other words, it's the way that God has put together human language and human understanding so that we can comprehend His Gospel. And the way that Paul arranged this letter is not by mistake. In fact, it's half and half. It's divided in two almost exactly with the beginning part of Paul's Gospel in what we call the indicative mood. The indicative mood is a, a, a form of grammar and what it means is that God is saying what He has already done and who you are. He's giving you a picture of your identity in Christ. And then the second half of Ephesians, he moves into what is called the imperative mood. The imperative being commands and direction. In other words, he says, love your husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. And so he's giving a set of imperatives, a set of commands. So in the beginning, he's saying, here's who you are. Here's what God has done for you. Now, in the second part of Ephesians, he's saying, here's what you're to do with what you are and who you are. And so last week we looked at this part of the Gospel, what God had done in the past. You see, grammar is not just indicative and imperative. There's also tenses to grammar. You all know that. There's past tense, present tense, and future tense. And as you think about your life, you see, unlike God, we are temporal. We are people who are living in time and we all have a past, a present, and a future. God, on the other hand, has no past, present, and future. He lives in eternity. 
And it's very difficult for us even to imagine what eternity is. But whatever it is, it's not past, present, and future. So God lives in eternity, but the Bible tells us He has done something in the past, in the present, and in the future that changes our lives in such a way that we are now fit to live with Him, past, present, and future, in eternity, with Him. And last week we talked about this doctrine of election. I know that it causes no end of problems for many people, and I have my own questions about the doctrine of election and predestination. And if, you, if you're uncomfortable with it or something about it bothers you, please spend a few minutes after church in the question-answer time. I'd be happy to, to talk to you about it. But God does that election, that predestining in the past. And so listen carefully. Dr. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, says this in his commentary. And unless you start, at least to some degree, you start to wrap your mind around some of these things, it can become, your Christianity can be very, very shallow. And when trouble comes, you get knocked off the rails. What I'm trying to give you, what I'm hoping to build into each of your lives is a deep-rooted solidity so that as the trials and the waves and the turmoil of life come, and believe me, there are plenty to go around, that you can remain firm. Dr. Ferguson says this, all, all the spiritual blessings that we enjoy, all of them that we enjoy now in Christ are rooted in our election. Something God does in the past. What Paul says, before the foundation of the world. So all your present blessings, all of your life now, is rooted in something that God did in eternity past. He goes on, that divine decision made about us is confirmed by God's action in time. In other words, God does something in eternity past that then He works out in our present, in our past, present, and future, in our lives, to such a degree that it changes us. It transforms us. And you ask, well, how long does that take? Well, I don't know how long you're going to live. But however long that is, that's how long it's going to take. We in America, we want to drive up to a microphone, a, a thing, and give our order, and then we want to drive another 20 feet and pick up our order and be on our way. Yes? That's our life. We want it now. We don't want to wait. But God has told us to have an eternal perspective. In other words, as you look at your life, one eye you keep here and now. Yes, indeed. You have to look at it. Pay attention to what's going on in your life today. But there's another part of life. There's another part of existence which is out there. And so you have to keep one eye uh, over there. One eye here, one eye there. Kind of like those lizards. What do they call them? Geckos or whatever? You know, their eyes swivel. One is here, one is there. So a Christian is someone who is living now in the present, and I would say living fully now in the present, experiencing now in the present, but with an eye to the future. And that's what Paul does. And so in this grammar, we're going to, we've looked at a little bit about the past, but Paul goes on and he talks about our present, he talks about our future, and this morning we're going to look at our present. 
And we're going to look at three things. Paul talks about something that happens in the present that changes our identity. It gives us a new identity, a new status, and a new standing. That's what these verses are, 5 through 8. And so let's look at the first one. These are present, things that happen in the present to us. Look at verse 5. Adoptions as son, sons through Jesus Christ. This is a new identity. You know, I, I, uh, I have a certain past, and my past uh, gives me a lot of my identity for who I am today. Some of it good, some of it uh, not so good. You know, it's been said that young people don't think much about the past, especially really young kids, you know, teenagers. And, and why is that? Do you know why? Young people don't think much about the past? They, they don't have much past to think about. <laughs> but as you grow older, and, and young people, often their past, uh, there, there's not much, so their present is what is driving them, and their, their eyes are towards the future. So they're driven by the present and the future. But as you grow older, and you know, we have people of every age in our church, but as you get older, you start thinking, more and more about the past. Don't you? Why? Because there's a lot of it back there. And you're thinking about your past. And our past can often begin to drive us in our future. We become fearful. Or we regret our past. And I have lots of regrets. Uh, I, won't, I won't enumerate them because all of you will run out the door screaming and pulling your hair. going, Oh no, our pastor. <laughs> He's not the prayer gone of virtue that we thought. We all have a past. And we, so we think about that and our past can often shape the way we live in our present. And our future, our future fears, future anxieties. What's going to happen to me? Is my health going to hold up? Am I going to live? Am I going to make, make a living? Well, what Paul says here, adoption through Jesus Christ makes us sons of God. It changes our identity. It gives us, if you will, a new spiritual DNA. Something we can't... You see, you can't really change your past. Only God can redeem your past. And that's what he's saying here. Dr. John Stott said this. It's amazing, and I hope that it's not too early in the morning, but this one thing I'm going to tell you can change the way you look at life in general. It's that profound. Especially as you struggle with heartache and, and, and things that happen in your lives. I mean, somebody gets torn away from you in a moment, in the blink of an eye, or some financial collapse, or some, uh, your marriage goes off the rails, or one of your kids go, loses their mind. Listen to what Dr. Stott said. Adoption is the consequence of our election. Indeed, now listen. Indeed, when people ask the speculative question, here it is, why did God go ahead with the creation when He knew it would be followed by a fall? Don't every one of you wonder about that? Why did He create the way He did knowing that people would turn against Him? That there would be cosmic treason? Why did He go ahead and create? Why didn't He create a bunch of perfect people who would never sin? Why did He create the world knowing that it was going to fall? 
that man would fall. When I grow up, I want to be Dr. John Stott. This guy's brilliant. He's gone now, but brilliant. Listen, here it is. One answer that we can tentatively give is that He destined us for a higher dignity even than the original creation would bestow. Did you get that? Some of you probably didn't get it. Let me say it again. He destined us for a higher dignity than even the original creation would bestow. In other words, God did something in this creation with the fall, with sin, and is doing it now every moment of every day. He is creating something. Think with me, folks, please. He is creating something in you and I that would not have existed otherwise. You say, oh man, I just don't know if I can get my head around that. How can that possibly be? Let me explain it this way. There is a new identity in us to where the love that is given to us is of a certain quality. And the love returned back to the giver is of a certain quality that would not have existed otherwise had we not fallen. Here, the love given. There's a new identity, Paul says, in Christ. A greater dignity, more belovedness, more beauty, even than what Adam knew in the Garden of Eden before he sinned. That's given to you and I. It's the highest, you see, the highest expression. Think for a minute. The highest expression of God's love is not found in Him loving a perfect creature. The highest expression of God's love is found in Him loving you and me out of our fallenness, out of our sin out of our stains, out of our woundedness. He loves us out of that. That's a greater love than even what Adam experienced. Jesus, uh, Jesus expressed it this way. He was invited into the home of a Pharisee, a very religious man whose life was impeccable. He was perfect in every sense. He was like uh, the most moral person you can possibly imagine. And while he was there in the house, Jesus was not treated hospitably. He was invited, but he was not treated hospitably. In the ancient Near East, in fact, even today, when someone comes in your home, there are certain things that have to be done. You give them a drink of water. You bring a servant in. They wash your feet. They show you. They give you a kiss. They greet you. There are certain things that have to be done for hospitality to be expressed. None of that was done for Jesus. And so while he's sitting there, in this room, filled with religious people, the best people, the people, the best people, they were all Presbyterians. The very best people. In comes a prostitute from the street. Unheard of, but because of the crowd, nobody could stop her. In she comes. She comes behind Jesus and she begins to weep. 
And I'm not talking a few tears. And she's weeping her eyes out. And her tears are pouring down. And she gets on her knees. And she takes her tears. And she, she wipes his feet. She's washing his feet with her tears. And then she takes her hair down, which was unheard of in that culture. She takes her hair down and lets it fall. <coughs> and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. <coughs> Pardon me. And while this is going on, Jesus is not looking at the woman. He's looking out at these religious men, these church people. And Simon, his host. And then here comes the trouble. Whenever Jesus, when you hear Jesus say these words, you're already in trouble. Simon, I have something to say to you. I hate that when he does that to me. <laughs> Please, can't you go talk to Marty V? Just go fix things with it. I mean, after all, it's her fault. But no, he never does that. And I bet you he doesn't do it with you. I have something to say to you, Simon. Listen. You see this woman? Oh man, he is really in trouble now. You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has not ceased to wet my feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but the moment I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I tell you this, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. Do you see? Jesus' love for this woman, her, His forgiveness for her, His acceptance for her, His love for you and I in our brokenness and in our sin is of a different kind, a different quality. It's altogether more lovely than even what He had for Adam and Eve in the garden. And the love returned is uniquely a different quality and quantity. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter said the, the angels in heaven desire, they long to look into this truth. You see, they, they don't even understand. As much as God loves His angels and as powerful and perfect as they are, they cannot comprehend how a holy God could have stooped so low as to bring up this sinful woman or you or I out of the dust and forgive us. Adoption. Adoption makes this kind of love a reality. We become, folks, and this is why you must see this in your own life. If you don't see yourself as unique, if you don't see yourself as beloved, if you don't see yourself as a son or daughter that God has reached down and brought you up out of the, the gutter of life and cleansed you and made you His own, if you don't see that, then you live a, a life of constant fear and doubt. Does He love me? And you, like I said last week, maybe God's like He's got a daisy and He's plucking the, the, the He loves me, He loves me not. He loves, oh, I hope He lands on He loves me. No. Will you receive that kind of love? Will you let that identity go down deep into your soul? If you don't do it, you will always live in doubt and fear. And, and the Apostle Paul is saying, no, you are now in the present. 
have a new identity as a son, a daughter of God. And this gives us a new status. This is the second part. A new status. Look at verse 6 and 7. In the Beloved, in Him, we have redemption, forgiveness through His blood. This is how He sees you now. He adopts you into His family. But this is how He sees you now. These two words... uh, Uh, Redemption and forgiveness are very powerful words in the New Testament. The Greek words are strong words. Uh, The Greek word for redemption is from a group of words that the root is luo. And this word is apolutrosis. It's, It's from redemption that this love flows. Redemption. This word group means to be set free from slavery. It harkens back to the Exodus, back to Egypt. Everyone that would have heard these words, if you were Jewish, you would have immediately thought of the Exodus, and if you were a Greek, you were steeped in a culture where people were enslaved, even slaves owned slaves in the Greek culture. So slavery was endemic in the Greek and Roman culture. And slavery was in the DNA of the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture. And so when Paul uses a strong word, they would have immediately said, oh, I see, Jesus is my new exodus. He's my new way out of slavery. I am redeemed. I have been bought Redemption means to pay a price. He was redeemed. We have been redeemed by a price. And then he couples this with this word forgiveness. Another strong word in the New Testament. The fact that Paul put these two together, he didn't do it very often, but when he did, it was a pounce like a double barrel shotgun. It means to hurl or cast out. You say, how does that have to do forgiveness? Well, it means that with a strong hand, God brought them out from their slavery. In other words, we have the picture, I think, well, I know what picture we have because I've seen it. It's the picture in, it's it's Charlton Heston. Right? And there's all these people, multitudes of people behind him, and Cecil B. DeMille is back there somewhere with his camera. And Charlton Heston is at the front of the line, and he's majestic, and he's got the beard going on and all that stuff. And he, he lifts his staff, And he goes like this, and off they go. Like God is the Pied Piper. Come on, let's all go. That's not what happened. He came down in in horrific power and strength and might. He was turning water to blood. He was making locusts. He was raining hail down. And then he drove them, the Old Testament says, he drove them out of Egypt. They didn't just go out following a Pied Piper. He drove them out. He redeemed them from slavery and then He brought them out with a strong arm. Powerful forgiveness. One commentator said this, not only deliverance do we have from sin's penalty, but from its pollution and its enslaving power. And the reconciliation of an offended God, satisfaction to a just God, is the positive side of that. In other words, He takes us out, but He brings us into something. See, it's one thing 
to stand before the judge. And this is what uh, J.I. Packer talks about. It's what Dr. Stott talks about. I could go on and on uh, giving you names. But this is what Paul and the Holy Spirit is wanting you to know. That when you were adopted, God did not simply forgive you like a judge forgives uh, the, the offender and then send you on your merry way. It's much more than that. He forgives us and then, ta- and then in, in, an ex- in an act of what we can only call scandalous mercy, extreme mercy, He takes that sinner, cleans him up, and He says, not only am I going to forgive you, I'm going to take you into My family. I'm going to redeem you and forgive you and bring you in, give you a new status, a new identity, a new status. Not, not a slave, a son. He frees us from the penalty of sin, but then He gives us a new status, a new power, so that we can, in fact, resist sin. You're no longer a slave. Paul wrote this in Galatians. Listen carefully, folks. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. Now, I would be willing to bet that if we stopped and we actually... Well, I'll do it. Here we go. Are you ready? This is a poll, a survey. How many of you today are sinners? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you would like to accept Jesus today and become a Christian so that you can have a new identity? All of you that raised your hand, put them back up. Okay, you need to become a Christian. Because if you're still a sinner, you're not a son. Oh my goodness, are we going to have fun after church today? Are you a sinner in the sense that you still sin? Everybody say yes. Yes. Are you a sinner by your nature? No! Are you a sinner by nature? No! You're, are, are you born again? Then what nature do you have now, please? Somebody? Are you schizophrenic? Do we need to check you into a hospital? Yes, okay, we have one honest person. No, we have a new nature in Christ. We are now His sons. We have new life. We are a new being. We are no longer by nature sinners. We sin because we're still in this fallen world and we still sin because we have a habituated, uh, habituated self, if you will, that just knows sin. And we're having to relearn Our identity is in Christ. You see the power in that? If you don't resort to that, when sin comes knocking at your door, folks, if you don't resort to your new nature, what have you got left? Willpower. That's all. And frankly, some of you have strong willpower and you fake it and think that's really progress and sanctification and holiness. And it's not. It's just your willpower. And believe me, something will come along in your life that will derail your willpower. Every one of us, if you live long enough, you will find that thing. 
or it'll find you. On the other hand, if you resort to the new creation, if you resort to your adoption, your forgiveness, your redemption, if you go to that when sin comes knocking at your door, you will find the one waiting there to be your strength to uphold you in all things is none other than Jesus Christ, the King. It gives us a new status. We become sons, not slaves. We have a new ability. The ability of the new birth in us. This new life that Jesus gives us when we come to Him in repentance and faith. A new basis for our lives. The Apostle Paul said this. This is what he was telling the Romans how you defeat sin. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He's saying quit thinking of yourself in terms of sinner, sinner, sinner. Yes, you're a sinner because you sin. But think of yourself in a different sense in terms of your identity. Quit defining yourselves. What did I tell you for the last two weeks, folks? Stop defining yourselves in terms of what you do. If we do that, if we continue to do that, folks, we are never Christians. We are just Pharisees. You okay with that? Somebody give me a sign. Okay, good. If, if you define yourself by what you do, how well you're doing, then you're no different than the Pharisees. But if you start to define yourself by what? By what Jesus has done for you, in you, as you. Look at all these words that the Apostle Paul is using in Ephesians. He's driving and driving and driving it into us that you have a new identity in Him. A new status. And finally, a new standing. Look at verse 6, how he does this. To the praise of His glorious grace, blessedness in the Beloved. And then jump down to verse 8. He says, the riches of His grace are lavished on us. Praise to His glorious grace, blessedness in the Beloved, and then the riches of His lavish grace. What, what Paul did is, is an ancient uh, uh, literary thing called an inclusion. He put in the Beloved, in between grace and grace. Lavish, glorious, lavish, glorious, grace, grace. And He puts you in the middle. He sandwiches you in between. Grace. Grace first. Grace last. Grace. Nothing but sheer grace. Jesus plus what? Nothing. And we, but we never, we never get over it till our dying day, folks. You're going to come and you're going to bring Him the things. You're going to say, oh, please, accept me because of this. And He's going to just squeeze you and say, no, I don't think so. I'd rather accept you because of that. And point you to His Son. And when you see the glory of Jesus Christ, when it comes crashing down into your life, you no longer find the same appetites in yourself. You find a new love. What Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. You cannot conquer sin just by killing and killing and mortifying the sin. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the sin. You must replace it with something greater. Dead to sin, yes. But alive to Christ. Alive to God. And that expulsive power, Chalmers said, will push sin. As you're tearing sin out of your heart, pull Jesus Christ into your heart. 
It's not how well I'm doing. It's how well He did for me. When uh, Marty V and I were trying to figure out whether or not to come back to El Paso, we were living in Florida. I had been three years in seminary and three years pastoring Pleasant Hill Presbyterian Church. And we got a, an offer, a call to come back to El Paso to Christ the King. And we did not expect to come back here. We didn't want to come back to El Paso. We had sold everything we had pretty much. We had a few things left in storage, but we would moved our whole life to Florida with the idea that God was calling us away from our family, our friends, our home, and into a new life. And so off we went. We cut every uh, tie and off we went to Florida. And we had an amazingly difficult time in Florida and an amazingly wonderful time in Florida. And I pastored a little church there and the little church didn't do too well. Uh, it was in trouble when I got there and I made it worse. Uh, so, <laughs> but we got a call back to this church, and I was really wrestling. And we, you know, we came out here, we met the people in the church, uh, a few of, uh, who are left. But I went back, and I, I went to some of the people that I trusted, and one of them was Mike Betis at RTS, who was my counselor. And I asked Mike, I said, I don't know how to discern God's will. I don't know how to decide His calling. And Mike told me, he said, Chuck, there's not just a theology of calling, there's also a theology of place. Where do you belong geographically? And I knew. I hated to hear it. I, I wanted him to tell me something. Why did he have to say that? I wanted to go somewhere easy. I wanted to go do something. I wanted to go where there was water and green stuff. But as I started thinking through it, I, I started to think, no, God didn't make me for easy. He made me for hard. And I was always claustrophobic when we lived in Florida because of trees made me feel closed in. And I was raised in the desert where you can get up on even a little pump and you can look 50 miles. And slowly, the theology of place began to take hold and I started to think, you know what? I'm made for this. I have a new identity. I don't have anything to be afraid of. I have a new status. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. And I have a new standing. A new place. And that place is not Florida, it's not the Caribbean, it's not the Hawaiian Islands, it's not the Rocky Mountains, it's not the most beautiful place, and it's not Disneyland. My place is not even El Paso. My place is where? In the Beloved. Then anywhere I go is okay. And He's with me there in that place, in power, in strength. I have a new identity. I've been adopted. I have a new status. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I've been brought out of slavery. And I have a new place. I'm in Jesus Christ. In the Beloved One. And so wherever God takes me, whether it's El Paso or Disneyland, I am secure in Him. And I can live there. How do you do that? How could you possibly live in that kind of assurance? And I'm going to tell you folks, the only way you can do it, the only way I've managed to do it, is to believe the Gospel. What is the Gospel? 
What is it? I tell you every week, the gospel is knowing this, that Jesus' identity, He never lost His identity as the divine Son of God. He never for a moment lost His divine Sonness. But to that beauty, to that holy, spotless Lamb of God was placed so much pollution, so much corruption, so much sin, mine, all mine, and yours, all yours, so much put on Him that Paul wrote later and said, He who knew no sin was made to be sin. A sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you see it? The more you look, the more you gaze at the beauty of Christ's holiness there in the cross, the greater your freedom will become. Randy Pope in the journey material tells us this. We lost it all. He did it all on the cross. And we, we get it all. I hope that you'll find your identity in Him and look to Him, please, in Christ's name. Let's pray. Father, um, please help us as we try to find our identity in Jesus Christ, sometimes so very hard, especially when the sin and darkness of this world, the pain and the suffering that we see around us are so strong. And yet we know that You, in the person and work of Your Son, You suffered for us, that we might have hope in Him. And I do pray, Father, that You would grant us that hope, that new identity, and that forgiveness, that new status, and a new place in the Beloved. Please help us, Father, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.